folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, folks, today's guest is a fellow who's going by Lester this time around. He is a returning guest under a new name. He has spoken on the technocratic takeover of schools in Michigan and U.S. Uh, Route 23 through Michigan. He studied at Eastern, Eastern Michigan University, where he majored in American labor history and continental philosophy, as well as earning a master's in social foundations, from which he launched a prestigious career as a garbage truck driver, food delivery driver, package delivery, food cashier, amongst many other wage slaves' nightmares. I was a psychology dropout who became a uh, cook, so I can totally empathize with that. Um, he has formerly been active in the anti-war movement and community organizing and is living as the techno in the pe- techno peasant dream on a hermitage farm outside of Ypsilanti, Michigan, where he studies local occulted history and places in his free time. And on top of all of that, he is the host of the tongue-in-cheek satirical podcast called Something Unexplained, which you can listen to for free on Patreon. Lester, thank you for joining me again this evening, sir. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Always a blast. Yes, it is, sir. All right. Today's topic is one of the great mysteries of the interwar years. And for you younger ones out there, that's between World War I and World War II. So, during the 1920s, an especially militant offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan emerged in the Midwest. It was known as the Black Legion. For nearly two decades, it was at the center of much, much speculation. And later, much of that speculation proved to be spot on by the host of murders attributed to the outfit. Its infamy became such a pop culture staple that there were several movies and even the shadow radio drama was partly inspired by it. And there was, of course, the classic Humphrey Bogart movie. You can't forget that. So after several members were convicted of murder, history states that it quickly drifted back into the other. Or did it? For decades, there have been rumblings that it remained a force in the Midwest well into the Cold War era, and possibly as far into it as the Reagan years. We're going to explore those claims and many others in this deep dive. So on that note, let us start the show. Thank you. 
All right, Lester. So the Black Legion has its origins in the KKK during the period between the World Wars. Can you get a bit into the Klan's resurgence during this time and how the Black Legion grew out of it? So first, I want to say that uh, this is a pretty terrifying topic. And uh, even though a lot of the events took place really close to where I live, I had learned very little about it. I had only heard it in a name in passing. Um, and as I studied it, I really, <laughs> uh, it, it really inspires uh, some terror um, right out the gate. And I just really want to uh, stress that it was a little uncomfortable. I wasn't sure. I, I battled a little bit internally. Should I even talk about this? Like, this seems like something that history has forgotten. And, you know, I'm, I'm a historian, at least, you know, amateur. I have a degree, but I'm not practicing in any formal academic sense. Uh, and I, I want history to be learned and studied and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, but also, I don't want to give anybody some, some bad ideas. Uh, but I definitely think this is something, especially in current the current political climate, that people should really be aware of um, what, like what our real history is in the United States. And this this group was a very powerful group uh, that has been almost completely forgotten. Um, like I said, I live in the proximity of a lot of the major events that the Black Legion is known for, and I'd only heard it in passing. Uh, Malcolm X mentions it in his autobiography, uh, but that's I think that's pretty much the only real mention I've known about until the last few months when I started digging into this more. Uh, so yeah, the Black Legion started as a spinoff to the second wave KKK, and the second wave is known as the KKK that emerged in 1915, partially due to the success, the success of Birth of a Nation. Um, I'm sure most people out there are familiar with Birth of a Nation. It's a horribly racist movie that received just absolute, um, uh, it was lauded as, as a true master of cinema. And it, it really was with the special effects and whatnot. It was a huge blockbuster of the time. And it depicted uh, right-wing right -wing, uh, white terrorists in the South as the heroes trying to save uh, you know, save the white women from the, you know, lascivious black males. Um, it was definitely some really grotesque propaganda, but it was also, a, you know, a stunning example of what cinema was capable of that time. It, it was a real blockbuster. So this guy named William Joseph Simmons, uh, he thought that this was something he could exploit. Um, and so he, uh, you know, the original clan was much more autonomous and much more terroristic focus primarily on suppressing uh, black votes um, and trying to undermine the Republican state governments that were active in the South, trying to really overturn and undermine the whole Reconstructionist era after the Civil War. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, the first uh, black politicians weren't, you know, in the 50s and 60s, they were back in the 1870s, you know, um, well, I was going to say technically the late 1860s. I mean, when you say the 60s, you didn't necessarily off, but it was it was the 1860s, though. That's what I, oh, yes. So thank you for that. Yes, the 18, 1860s. Um, 
Yeah, they were. I wouldn't say it was the grand era, right? When most of the reconstruction basically came to an end. Yes. Um, and uh, Plessy v. Ferguson in the, what, 1896, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's there was a huge reign of terror through about 1886 up until the 1890s, where, uh, you know, they were literally clogging the rivers in major southern cities with massacred black people. There were huge race riots everywhere. Um, huge lynching mass lynchings um and they they really you know quashed you know they 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 waged a terror campaign in our editor to reclaim white political supremacy and yeah grant basically they they created a uh a truce with grant where he removed the soldiers uh removed the national guards or, yeah he removed no, the uh well, there. I don't think there's a national the army guard from the south, yet. right? He removed the the army. He removed the armies from the south, right? Because they were still actively, um, almost occupying it. Well, yeah, effectively. Yeah. I mean, they were basically still occupying it. I mean, <laughs> you know, again, yeah, obviously, you know, there are two sides to everything, but there are pretty, you know, compelling reasons for why the occupation was happening. And of so, course, but um, yeah. Um, if I so could check for like one absolutely. second too, just to put like the, this in like a little bit of a broader um, geopolitical context, but I believe Ulysses Grant uh, was the first president post Civil War. I can't remember if Johnson was or not, but I think Grant uh, was the first president from the state of Ohio. And subsequently, Ohio and New York would really become the two major uh, states in the U.S. in terms of political power from roughly this point, i.e. the end of the Civil War, up to uh, really the aftermath of the First World War, um, pretty much, I think, all the way up to the Harding administration. But so many presidents, uh, Garfield, McKinley, Taft, uh, Ohio just dominated the presidency throughout this era and it also had a curious history with the confederacy as well um interestingly the knights of the golden circle were actually founded in cincinnati ohio and uh there had been a lot of support for it in that region and i just wanted to sort of point this out because um next to michigan ohio was also the major power center for the black legion uh, later on but it is fascinating how um you know you still sort of have some of these political uh, subtext playing out within sort of the broader region that go back to the civil war if you will oh yeah and i i don't think it's too surprising that uh the black legion was actually founded in ohio um near the borders of uh, west virginia and pennsylvania um in bel-air and uh i don't think that's a coincidence i think it's you know it's uh I, I I have to maybe uh, digress a little bit. And, uh, you know, Ohio is one of the interesting states in that it has no acknowledged Native American tribes. They they do not, they have, uh, they don't have any reservations. Um, they have effectively denied the, the political existence of any Native Americans from Ohio. And they have one of the most radically anti-Native uh legal structures of of all the 50 states honestly and uh i think you can trace that all the way back to it being a crucial part in the founding of the american empire in some some big ways um 
So well, back to the uh, second wave clan here. Um, so the, the second wave clan, like I said, it was inspired by Birth of a Nation. And the man who ran it initially really was a, a businessman. And he thought he could capitalize on the success of the movie. And so he even organized a, a parade to go see Birth of a Nation and all the, the what we now think of as the KKK regalia, which traditionally didn't really exist. It was kind of an invention of the movie. At least that's what I've read. Um, and you so he even... Um, yeah, so he even showed up in with the horses and all of that to screenings of the movie. And, it is uh, uh, interesting, uh, just to interject, but the, the regalia comes, I believe, from the uh, the carnivals in Spain. I know there's like a specific um, name for the regalia that they do at the festivals, but yeah, it's out of that. So it's it's just interesting because this is taken very much from like the Catholic tradition. Yes, that's what I was going to so add. Yeah, It's like, and yeah. this is a group that was militantly, at least allegedly militantly Protestant very. throughout this whole era. Yes. Yet, so um, it, it's very interesting. And keep that in mind because we'll probably get into some other groups that have similar regalia as well. So, but anyway, don't mean to keep interrupting you, Lester. Please. Oh, no, uh, chime in as you feel inspired inspired absolutely so uh like i said this organization uh was really founded more as a business uh it was structured as a business and officially it operated as a fraternal organization and it really um, obviously there was there was terrorism that went along with it and uh they solidified what we now know as the kind of standard kkk politics which is uh, very WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, um, anti-Catholic, anti-Jew, anti-Black, uh, anti. Uh, uh, they were they were very uh, pro pro prohibition, but uh, they also wanted the KKK to be kind of like a uh, I've uh, read, read as a secret locker room where you know you could go party at your KKK meetings, but publicly they were very uh, pro prohibition, um, had a very uh, strict kind of morality code um but really they were and yeah they did they like i said they did terrorisms they did cross burnings but they were mostly a fraternal organization and they were throwing picnics you know there was the the sunday clan picnic right um and so the more militant you know the people who knew the history of the of the kkk uh some of them were displeased with this more social uh, fraternal aspect and wanted to get more into um the more i guess yeah just the outright terrorism uh and you had a guy in uh around uh 1820 uh, 1924 who a guy named uh, william shepherd doc doc shepherd he was called uh in bel air ohio he thought that the clan had missed a lot of its uh its early mystery and pageantry he he was the grandchild of a union soldier from pennsylvania but he himself was really obsessed with quantrill and the quantrill raiders and the night riders um and he thought that there you know quantrill represented some sort of mythic southern chivalry that he wanted to restore he wanted to bring he wanted to bring the real uh kind of romantic you know, in the old sense, the kind of scary, yeah. mysterious aspects 
Can and you, so he oh go ahead you explain con uh, Quantrill for a second here because he's kind of an interesting character but i don't know if everybody's going to be totally familiar with him. <sighs> so Quantrill was a uh a gorilla who fought for, he 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 fought for the confederacy and uh they they did all sorts of uh unconventional warfare um they did a lot of bank robberies they did a lot of uh uh, just yeah more acts of terrorism um and uh he really inspired really inspired ter- a lot of terror in the uh the borderlands um do you have anything you want to add to him no not that i can think of but it's you know again it's just sort of interesting you know this whole region has such a legacy of these paramilitary groups um i know Pennsylvania again very close to all this even I don't think it's directly related to the Legion story it also had just a tremendous amount of groups like what the Liberty Legion and um Mm -hmm. the one really militant version of the Orange Order they had in there one of the few um that was more akin to like the one in the old country in the UK just a lot of yep 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 yep. Yep. yeah one of one of the uh a prominent assassin for the legion was formerly a member of the orange men oh that does not surprise me like i said that pennsylvania was like one of about the only areas in the u.s where there was this really hardcore orange contingent in several of the cities there so yeah it's another uh another group that i i couldn't track down that's also from pennsylvania that plays a little bit of a role in the story um i've only found them as an official military regiment uh but what I've read was was more of something kind of akin to the Black Legion, and that was a group called the Bucktails, the Pennsylvania Bucktails. Have you heard of them? No, not familiar with them. That's interesting, though. Yeah, that's a name I've uh, that definitely piqued my curiosity. And like I said, when I when I searched for it, Pennsylvania has has some riflemen regiment, some historic regiment that they call the Bucktails. But this this definitely seemed more like I said, like the the Black Legion. Well, Pennsylvania um, had such a peculiar history in that aspect to begin with, because for years they had the, what was it, the coal and iron police, I believe, who essentially were like just a private police force that the companies owned for most of the mining towns and what have you in the entire state. So yep. the auto have, industry like, had the same thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I kind of feel like a lot of these groups, you know, cause this is, you know, to put this in historical perspective, started to be a backlash against the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which was headquartered in Chicago. And it was, I think, actually provided some of the guards periodically for the um, the Iron and Coal Police in Pennsylvania. But anyway, there had been a backlash against this kind of stuff for rather obvious reasons, starting in the late 19th and uh, 19th century. And then by the early 20th century, started to be a bit of a crackdown on it so in the interwar years i kind of feel like this is part of the reason why you see the rise of these super patriot type organizations that we're talking here they essentially were kind of feeling the void that groups like the pinkertons weren't able to do at least publicly anymore yeah i think that's a great analysis that we can get get more into into the specific yeah kind of a larger systems role that the Black Legion served uh, a little farther on. I think that might be productive. Um, should I get back to uh, to some of the history here? Absolutely. All right. So in uh, 
1923. Oh, so so like I said, uh, the the second wave KKK was very much a money making organization. They had a, a monopoly on their robes. Their dues were fairly steep for the time. I think it was ten dollars. Uh, $10 membership, and I forget how much the robes were, but they held a, a monopoly on the robes. So you, you had to have the robes and you had to buy it from them. And uh, they also paid a bounty. They had paid full-time recruiters and they paid a bounty to their recruiters. So if you were a skilled recruiter, you could become very, very wealthy. Um, the, uh, in, uh, in 1923, the organization was taken over from its uh, founder, William Joseph Simmons, and broken up into two, two kind of spheres, two districts. Uh, there was the Midwest and the Southern District. The mid, uh, let's see, the Southern District was run by Hiram Wesley Evans, and the Midwestern District was run by D.C. Stevenson out of Indianapolis. And this is where we we kind of have a shift. So, like I said, in uh, uh, 1924, you had Doc Shepard over in Bel Air. He was getting sick of the kind of uh, Sunday. Sunday cake, Sunday social feel of the KKK and wanted to bring back some of the mystery, some of the romanticism that he imagined uh, went along with some kind of sort of great mystical Southern chivalry um, as exemplified by Quantrell and his rider, raiders. And uh, he dyed his robes black, put on uh, skull and crossbones on it and uh, came up with an oath that was inspired by Quantrell's oath. Um, I don't know if you want me to read the oath right now, but I can, uh, I got it pulled up here. Oh, go for it, bro. Let's see. It's a little long. Um, actually, why don't I go through if, uh, if people can bear with me, I can read through the whole kind of induction. Uh, it's a, it's a little long, um, but go. I can try to do it quickly. All right. Uh, uh. So first, it begins with a questionnaire. Are you a native-born white Protestant, Gentile, American citizen? Do you understand that the organization you're about to join is strictly secret and military in character? Are you willing to join an organization that is classed by our enemies as being an outlaw organization? I think this was a really important thing. Uh, KKK also had this, so that you had to agree to belong to an outlaw organization. Uh, and then uh, I, through your crew's name, hereby on my sacred honor before these black knights do promise and swear that I will never reveal any part or portion whatsoever of the ceremonies I have already received or that which is about to be communicated to me or that in which I may be instructed to a single person in the whole world, except that he be a well-known member of this organization. I being absolutely certain that he is in good standing with his superior officers. I further promise and swear that should I fall and fail in the requirements and tests of this organization and be rejected, I will never reveal the name or identity of anyone I may have recognized, nor a single word I have heard to a living person. If I should fail in the keeping of this, my oath may, uh, my oath may the fearful punishment of the Black Knights be meted out to me. The punishment is death. Further questioning uh, by uh, what they call the Colonel is that uh, what is you know just uh, what is your name, where do you live, how demographics, right? Uh, let's see. Do you believe in a supreme being, a future reward and punishment? Can you ride a horse, drive a car, and shoot a rifle? Do you drink? Will you accept for your roof the sky, your bed the earth, and your reward death? To what secret societies do you now belong or have belonged in the past? Will you put this organization above any of which you now belong, have belonged, or ever hope to? This organization must come first. To what political party do you belong? Who would you be willing to forget your party and vote for the best man, regardless of what party it belongs to, if ordered to do so by your superior officer in this organization? Are you willing to take an order and go to your death, if necessary, to carry it out? 
Do you believe in white supremacy and that no Negro should have authority over a white man? Do you believe in intermingling and intermarriage between the black and white races? Do you believe in restricted immigration and the deportation of all undesirable aliens? Do you believe in the separation of church and state? Would you oppose by ballot and if necessary by bearing arms any attempt to place any portion of the public tax in the hands of the Roman Catholic Church for the use in their buildings and upkeep of their institutions? If it should become necessary to lie to protect a member of this organization, would you do so if ordered by a superior officer? Can you keep a secret? <sighs> and then uh, after a term of service in this organization, you may, may be required to perform some service on a higher plane than ordinary routine night riding. This would require a blood pact. Would you be willing to sign your own name in your own blood? What is your attitude towards the lynch law? Are you properly armed? Do you own a revolver, rifle, or shotgun? If not, will you arm yourself as soon as possible? Once they were inducted, they were ordered to first thing to go out and buy a gun if they did not already own one. Uh, the chaplain speaks the following. The purpose of war is to kill. God himself made an honorable and defensive principle, for he did not cast Lucifer out of heaven and relegate rebellious angels to the shades of hell. The love of life can be measured under two conditions. One is when our surroundings are happy and our attachments numerous. The other is when our liberties have been subjugated, peace destroyed, and everything we hold dear torn from us until we realize that contentment, love, and hope have forever vanished. We fight that the former condition may be regained, and we fight because the latter conditions leave us no occupation. You have already signified a desire to cast your fortunes with us. By doing so, remember that our purpose is to tear down, lay waste, despoil, and kill our enemies. Mercy belongs to sycophants and emasculated soldiers. It has no place in a fighter's outfit. To us, it is a vision repugnant to our obligations and practices. We recognize but one power to separate us in the hour of peril and to secure one in another at all hazards. We have pledged ourselves most sacredly and are bound by ties much stronger than honor can impose. Kneeling with gun drawns at their backs. So while, while they're saying the oath, there's a, a, a member, an already initiated member, puts a 38 revolver into their back while they say this oath. In the name of God and the devil, one to reward and the other to punish, and by the power of light and darkness, good and evil, here under the black arch of heaven's avenging symbol, I pledge and consecrate my heart, my body, or my heart, my brain, my body, and limbs, and swear by all powers of heaven and hell to devote my life to the obedience of my superiors, and that no danger or peril shall deter me from executing their orders, that I shall exert every possible means of my power for the extermination of the anarchist, communist, the Roman hierarchy and their abettors. I swear I will die fighting those whose serpent trail has winnowed the fair fields of our allies and sympathizers. I will show no mercy, but strike with an avenging arm as long as breath remains. I further pledge my heart, my brain, my body, and my limbs never to betray a comrade, and that I will submit to all the tortures mankind can inflict and suffer the most horrible death rather than reveal a single word of this my oath. Before violating a single clause or implied pledge of this my obligation, I will pray to an avenging God and an unmerciful devil to tear out my heart and roast it over the flames of sulfur, that my head be, be split open and my brain scattered over the earth, that my body be ripped up, my bowels be torn out and fed to carrion birds, that each of my limbs be broken with stones and then cut off by inches, that they may be food for the foulest birds of the air, and lastly, may my soul be submerged in molten metal and stifled in the flames of hell, and that this punishment may be meted out to me through all eternity. In the name of God, our creator, amen. Molten metal in the flames of <laughs> I actually had to write down the, what was it, the um, a higher plane than routine night writing. That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> and if people aren't too familiar, um, night writing itself is kind of a weird tradition. What I, what I read about it was that it was kind of a, a prank 
that they would do where they'd get some newcomer to town and they'd tell them that they had the biggest, baddest, best fraternal order and, uh, you know, the fee is kind of expensive, but if you bring a bunch of beer, you know, we'll, uh, they'll make it, or what, no, they said the hazing, the hazing was kind of intense, but if you brought beer for everybody that they would go light on you, right? But the joke was that they were just going to bring the beer for the big party, right? So they tricked these people into bringing the the, the booze. Um, and then they were, they were a member and they just go, they do weird stuff. There was actually a group near, near me here in Michigan that I read about that I, I imagine must be associated with this thing. And they would just pull all sorts of bizarre pranks. They were malicious, but they were kind of hilarious in their, their um, commitment, I guess. Like they would totally disassemble uh, people's tractor, like farm implements. It seemed like they were mostly like Eastern European or Jews that they would target. And they would totally disassemble their their implements, so the farmer would get up in the morning, and their you know their uh, their plow or whatever would just be a pile of nuts and bolts, right? Um, they would uh, tie the animals up in like surreal poses, suspended from the ceiling, uh, uh, just really weird stuff, you know, um, that was off putting. And like I said, surreal. It was it was terrorism, but it was also like some sort of like practical jokery, you know. Yeah, and I, performance art or something. Yeah, yeah, kind of like. Have you seen the the German film? Uh, what is it called? Um, the Educators. Is that what it's called? I uh, no, I do not believe so. Uh, it's pretty good. It's it's from leftists though. They uh, they break into rich people's houses when they're on vacation and and make surreal art out of their furniture and just like leave a note saying your days of plenty are over, right? Um, it's a, it's a pretty interesting. That's pretty fun. Uh, okay, so that that's the oath. That's the oath of of Quantrell. And like I said, when this oath is given, you you have a thirty eight revolver stuck into your back, and after you say the oath, they take the the round that was in the chamber, and they give it to you, and that is your your in card, basically. That's your uh, calling card, and one of their their kind of secret signals in public is you would take it out, you take the shell out and you just kind of toss it in your hand, right? And if the other person takes the shell out and tosses it in their hand or notes it in some special way, um, then you know they're a member, right? Um, so that's that's one of their their secret secret symbols. And that's why in Pontiac, they were known as the Bullet Club. So I think that's pretty interesting. So anyway, in 1924, you have this guy who who is has this kind of new vision. Uh, and uh, he actually gets kicked out of the KKK because he's too weird and extreme. And, you know, he's dyed his robes black, you know. <laughs> we wear white robes here, right? So he got kicked out. But then in 1925, the, uh, the guy who ran the... No, the Midwestern branch of the KKK. Um, he, there was this woman who lived down the street from him in Indianapolis named Madge Oberholzer. And he proposed to her and she was not interested. Um, and he kept pressuring her and she was not interested. She, he was a friend. They were family friends, even the friends were, families were friends. And, uh, he asks her over late one night, says he asks her, has to ask her a question. And he proceeds to drug and kidnap her with his friends and repeatedly rape her on a train trip to where he traffics her to Chicago. When they get to Chicago, she makes some excuse that she needs to get something from the pharmacy and they let her go to the pharmacy 
and uh, she she steals a bottle of uh, 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 mercury sulfur, and she takes a bunch of it, you know, to commit suicide. Uh, but she doesn't die; she's just in a, a very slow, gradual, agonizing death. Uh, so uh, Stevenson kind of freaks out and is like, "Well, I guess we'll just take her back to her family." And so he drops her off at her family's thinking that she was done for, you know, and uh, she did end up dying. It took her, I think, what, I don't know, was it eight or 14 days? I can't remember what I read, but it took her a long time and she was able to speak. And so she was able to give a full account and testimony of her, her kidnapping and assault and uh, trafficking and uh it, it destroyed the clan uh the clan went from having possibly as many as four million members nationally to just a you know a, maybe like thirty three thousand. india indiana went from having like three hundred thousand to fifteen thousand three hundred thousand to fifteen thousand pretty much overnight after the story broke and it really just destroyed the whole the whole organization it didn't totally disappear but it was it was not functional. Um, it wasn't a force at all at that point. So what you see at that point is almost, I think, a one-for-one one, people just started joining the Black Legion or getting inducted into the Black Legion. <clears throat> so let's see. Uh, the Black Legion has gone by a few different names. Uh, initially, Doc Shepard called it uh, what uh, the Black Guard. And then there were Black Knights, and then it kind of, they kind of settled into being the Black Legion. Uh, but they've also been known as the uh, Black Knight Riders, or just Knight Riders, the Blacks, the 20, 20 End Club, Bullet Club, Searchlight, Malteca, Alpha and Omega. Um, and uh, they had a bunch of front organizations. In Michigan, they started the Wolverine Republican League, which was a totally above-ground Republican you know, Republican uh, club. Uh, it was a merger of the Wayne County Republicans and the what 17th Republican District Club, uh, but they were all 100% Black Legion. Um, so you have fronts like that. And they also uh, bought churches and ran churches, and they even paid preachers to come in who weren't members of the Black Legion just to give proper cover, but they wouldn't let anyone join the church except for Black Legion. It was all a cover. And they used the church for, you know, midnight meetings and whatnot. Um, there's a church that was right across the street from the, uh, the the Masonic Lodge in Detroit, which if people don't know, the Masonic Lodge in Detroit is uh, is huge. It's giant. Um, it's, a, it's a giant monolith. And they couldn't meet very easily because they were a highly secret organization. And so they would strategically use Masonic lodges uh, in order to disguise their music. They would rent them, right? Or, or old churches. So there was a church called the Little Stone Chapel. And I tried to find it. And I think it's uh, I think it's just a, a parking lot now. I'm not totally sure. But almost right next to where it was is a uh, uh, the I Am Temple of uh, uh saint germain and i thought that was interesting you probably get a kick course, out of that of course, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um so that's kind of kind of their their style 
so so you have the like I said, you have the fall in the second wave of KKK, and then Black Legion is kind of there to pick up the people who fall out, right? Um, all right. So should we move on to the next? Yeah, yeah. So um, where did the group's membership primarily come from? And what were its peak uh, numbers like? And do you have anything else on how it was organized? Oh, yeah. Uh, so right away, one of the most basic aspects of their organization, and I think it really speaks to to almost like a fractal relationship to why they existed in the first place in many ways, uh, is a relationship with the automobile and the auto industry. Um, they were organized around the military, the army, um, in, in, uh, 19 or yeah, 1932, uh, Doc Shepard met with a man from Lima, Lima, Ohio named Virgil Burt Effinger, Effinger. And Burt Effinger was a, uh, a veteran of the Spanish American, uh, yeah, Spanish American war. Right. If people don't don't know, the Spanish American War was one was absolutely brutal, just outright genocide, especially with what happened in the Philippines. Uh, total ethnic cleansing, you know, entire villages, entire islands completely depopulated. Right. Um, and so he was a veteran of this war. And uh, I should add uh, about Doc Shepard Williams, uh, and I think it's also true of Bert Effinger, is they were they were just big into fraternities, right? William Shepard, Doc Shepard, he was also a member of the Eagles. He was a member of the Moose Lodge and he was a 32nd degree Mason. And, and he was also, he was a former Grand Cyclops in Bel Air. Uh, Bert Effinger was, uh, I think, I don't know. I, I think he held uh, an, a pretty high up office in, in uh, his KKK branch as well. Um, and he was, he actually got kicked out of the AFL-CIO for, or I don't I guess it was just AFL. Yeah, it wasn't CIO yet. Uh, he get, got kicked out of that for being too extreme in his conservative views. Um, and so he kind of had a, a little bit of an anti-union bias. He was an, an electrician. But he really liked Doc Shepard's vision, but he really uh, uh, wanted to organize it more in a military fashion. And he had a lot of connections. He had vast networks in the KKK from his, his time there. And when he took over, it grew exponentially. It grew very rapidly. Now, um, a lot of academics think that the organization only had, uh, I don't know, tens of thousands, you know, maybe as much as, as uh, 30,000. But there's a lot of good evidence that, you know, Michigan itself may have had as many as 100,000 members up to 1 million members. Um, entire cities were controlled by the Black Legion. Highland Park, Oakland, uh, a lot of places in Oakland, uh, Pontiac, Flint, Dearborn, which is where Ford was heavily based, Adrian, all sorts, all of these towns. Ypsilanti, where I'm from, or I'm living now, there there was a heavy Black Legion presence. Just to interject, Dearborn is also uh, where the Dearborn Independent uh, was based. Oh, yes. Those of you yeah. unaware, this is uh, what published um, the International Jew and um, the editor, I think it was William Cameron was his name, really interesting guy. He was 
probably the person who wrote most of the international Jew, even though it was credited to Henry Ford. But he's, interestingly enough, also a possible bridgeway between British Israelism uh, into modern Christian identity theology as well. Uh, in some ways, he's kind of considered the father of identity theology. So again, just to sort of kind of point this out, it's fascinating. You would have this Black Legion presence in this area right here where you have this sort of proto-Christian identity theology being hashed out as well, in addition to the, you know, the international Jew and all the other stuff we know about, the Boris Brazel, for instance, coming over from uh, Germany with money from, oh gosh, the, the one Romanov prince and the um, his wife, uh, who are based out of Bavaria, uh, to help, or actually rather it would be Brazel taking money back, I guess, from Henry Ford in a lot of cases to uh, these people for the Nazi party, so... And you have the uh, Colombians in Georgia. Have you are you familiar with them? No, but that's interesting with the name. I'm already intrigued. Now, what I read claimed that it was uh, because of Christopher Columbus, which I don't think is probably true, um, especially because they were also anti-Catholic. I think, you know, it has a larger, <laughs> it has other implications, right? Than Christopher Columbus calling themselves the Colombians. Uh, but they were kind of like the Black Legion too, in that they appealed to a lot more of the working class aspect working class members. Uh, they were kind of accused of being like cut rate KKK. They, if the KKK charged $10 membership, they would charge six, you know, um, but they really got into the Christian identity stuff. Well, it wasn't, yeah, it was British Israelism. So that's interesting. You see a lot of these groups and they all, you know, it's a phenomenon. And I really think in many ways, they are definitely the foot soldiers for bigger industrial networks and the industrial networks stay hidden and, these kind of uh, street thugs or night riders or you know these uh shirts movements or whatever uh they kind of take the brunt they do the wet works and then they get discarded and you see that a lot with the legion a lot of their assassinations the assassinators showed up dead within a couple days and uh one of the the big characters that play one of the guys as i said was an orange man um guy named uh, uh dean dayton he was supposed to assassinate a journalist in Pontiac and he couldn't quite pull it off at first. And so his higher ups were planning on having him kill the journalist and then having two cops who are black Legion members immediately kill him and turn it into a big pro cop feel good PR story. Right. Um, so they really view their own, the foot soldiers as very, dis very dis dispensable black legion guard member at a prison ended up dying of quote-unquote diabetes but he didn't have diabetes uh you know all sorts of weird stuff where their own members were showing up dead and it definitely seems like they were they were very invested in cleanup <laughs> you know so it wasn't the best organization to be a member of that's for sure they weren't kind to their members and it, it kind of really well you see with with uh Bert effinger taking over the leadership that immediately they just, you know, Doc Shepard was was rural. That Bel Air is pretty rural, and it kind of kept that rural flair. But when uh, Bert Effinger or Virgil Effinger took it over, he had connections in all the industrial centers with his former union activities, um, and uh, you just see it explode in Gary, Indiana, and uh, like I said, all the all the indus Midwestern industrial centers had Black Legion populations in, in large numbers. But the thing is, we only really know about Michigan because they got busted in Michigan. 
And we really only know what the few people got busted said. Um, and so we have no idea. We know that that terrorism took place in Ohio and Pennsylvania and some other places in the name of the Black Legion. But nobody really rolled on anybody. We don't actually know anything about that organization outside of what happened in Michigan. So to say what they actually pulled off, you know, uh, at least in Michigan, uh, they say that it could have been as, as you know, uh, as many as 100,000 members, some people saying as many as a million members. Uh, you know, they, they tried to inflate their numbers big time. And also some of the journalists on the other side, the socialists were kind of inflated the other way, too. Um, but I think it was bigger than than tens of thousands. I think it was probably closer to 100,000 to several hundred thousand members nationally. Um, although I don't know how functional all the other locals were, you know, how active, uh, because you have a character that came down from Pennsylvania that I mentioned earlier was a member of the Pennsylvania Bucktails. The state police had actually been, when he came to Michigan, were investigating him because he was a suspected member of that order. Uh, the Bucktails were, were kind of a quasi-fascist order like the 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 black legion um uh, and uh they had a similar tactic of, of the black legion where they would take over employment agencies so part of the appeal to becoming a black member a black legion member was they'd find you a job and they also tried to take over public uh public offices and they tried to get you into positions of power as much as as possible uh so you had a lot of elected officials uh, but as far as its organization, uh, it was based on companies of 99 men, uh, four companies to a battalion, four battalions to a regiment, and uh, a regiment at full strength was just under 1,600 men. Uh, and uh, the squad was a, a group of five men, and it was five men because it could fit into an automobile easily. So while uh, the Army, the basic squad, and Marines, the basic squad is eight men. For the Black Legion, it was five because it was based around the automobile. And uh, you'll see that the Black Legion was pretty much doing doing wet works for, for the automobile industry, at least in Michigan and northern Ohio. It's interesting, too, with this, you know, to sort of like uh, to add into why they would use this particular structure as well as, you know, I talked about earlier uh this is around the time when a lot of backlash is mounting against the Pinkertons and like detective agencies. There's starting to be a crackdown on it. So they turn to these uh, super patriot groups who were frequently organized in turn along the lines of a secret society. And again, this is uh, the heyday of fraternal orders in the United States, very much the early 20th century. I mean, almost every you know white man in the country was a member of at least like the Elks or the Odd Fellows or something like that. So this, you know, kind of behavior, getting members and jobs and that kind of thing, it's not necessarily a typical of how a lot of these fraternal orders operated during this era. This was, you know, one of the major appeals of being a member in addition to things like health insurance, um, money for burials, just stuff like that. Uh, but there were insurance, a lot of, yeah, practical reasons for it. So yeah, just wanted to like add that in there, but I think that's a big part of the reason as well, why they 
took this particular structure because it was something that most people uh specifically their targets white men uh, would have been very familiar with during this era it was very popular to be a part of these organizations and probably getting people in initially some of the more reluctant members i mean you know it would have been a good way to frame it as you know another kind of these quasi secret society type groups you know because again a lot of people just love to collect membership and this type of stuff in this era right right just like doc doc shepherd right yeah exactly i mean these guys would have just lists of all the different groups they were involved with depression especially so people were very desperate to jobs and the automobile industry in michigan was uh very famously open shop very famously anti-union and they had really shifted their employment to part-time a lot of part-time workers and so you had a huge influx of people from the south especially appalachia and kentucky uh tennessee who came up to the to southeast michigan and northern ohio to come try to get jobs in the factories during the depression. 
And uh, it's estimated that uh, about three quarters of Michigan's Black Legion members were of Southern origin. Uh, I think that's really interesting. A lot, like I said, a lot of people from Kentucky. Now, where I live in Ypsilanti, you know, when, when I first came to Ypsilanti, I, I came here for college and I decided to stay from a different part of Michigan originally. People in Ann Arbor, which is a much, you know, more elite town would, you know, kind of disparagingly refer to Ypsilanti as, as Ypsitucky, you know, uh, those those hillbillies over there. And I just thought it was a classist thing, which from Ann Arbor, it mostly was a classist thing. Um, but I come to realize that there's actually a historical reality to that and that the areas in uh, East Ypsilanti and the Willow Run area where the, the famous fac uh, airport and factory for World War II was, uh, it's a lot of Appalachian folks from Kentucky and West Virginia. I mean, a lot, all almost all of my neighbors. Uh, and they're still homesteading, you know, they're still kind of keeping keeping that way alive. And I've seen white supremacist graffiti walking around town, um, walking the bike path in the subdivision across from my house, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, these people, some of these people's grandparents were members of the Black Legion. I have no doubt. <laughs> um, I have no doubt of that. Uh, so, uh, I, I learned that Ipsatucky is a real thing. It's not just people being classist. It's, uh, it's, it's descriptive of a place and especially a time in Michigan history. And so, you know, they brought with them, uh, a lot of them were former KKK members before the KKK melted down. And uh, they just got reinducted into the Black Legion because it was pretty much one for one ideologically. And, and like you said, they were 100% Amer for 100% Americanism. You know, we already kind of got into this a little bit uh, in the last time you were on, I believe, when we were talking about uh, US-23, uh, one of the sort of legendary uh, north-south highways from the original uh, highway system that was launched, actually, I think, like right around, what was it, 1923, I think, or something like that. Uh, so yeah, so um, uh, US-23 is nicknamed the hillbilly highway in part because of this migration that lester here is alluding to it was so great and you actually had like a lot of uh, country singers and what have you that were going up along the highway as well so in fact i think there's one particular uh country music hall of fame right all the um, but yeah you had a lot of people like that along and it's a bit like um u.s route 61 which was the blues highway because this is the one that um so many of the african-american blues performers took from new orleans up through the mississippi delta on their way to uh, chicago so yeah it's just another kind of interesting facet of this especially since to this day uh, there again as uh, Lester and I talked about before and some of the other episodes I've done with uh, on US 23 with uh, Doc Inferno it's to this day there's still a lot of crime and potentially curious groups and what have you it's still connected to all these regions as well so it, it's sort of an ongoing thing and just to sort of put this in some context but it definitely the Black Legion that is to say fits in with some of the other uh, areas and characters that we've been looking at before in this particular part of the country so you know keep that in mind yeah us 23 and also uh the uh, U uh 75 interstate 75 are definitely the major you can see the spread of the black legion and and 25 or 75 and 23 intersect and run parallel that whole way um and uh you know 
So uh, you can definitely see the migrations from the from those corridors, yeah, up up into the Midwest <clears throat> and the in industrial centers. Uh, so uh, part of the way they would recruit is they would their their main wedges, recruiting wedges, were recruiting people to fight communism that they were going to be joining an anti-communist organization, or that they were uh, trying to keep uh, schools desegregated. So those were the two main recruiting wedge issues, but really they, they shanghaied people. Um, they would lie to people and they'd say, hey, let's take like a late night fishing trip, right? And their buddies would get in the car thinking they're going to go fishing or they're going to go to the bar, they're going to go catch a game or whatever, or they're going to some more um, whatever standard political or civic thing and they go to a field way out in the country and there's hundreds if not thousands of men in black robes and suddenly they have a pistol shoved in their back and they have to answer all these questions and they also they did mock hangings too so they'd have a guy with a harness right uh hidden under his clothes and they would they would do a mock lynching but the the bystanders did not know it was fake right or at least that was the intention um, so they did this whole, this whole elaborate thing, and they they had these these huge recruiting ceremonies where hundreds of people were inducted at a time, and uh, they were big. Sometimes just one night, sometimes three nights in a row. Uh, one of them happened in Saline, Michigan, which is right next to Ann Arbor, very close to where I live. Uh, so, like I said, I am very certain that <laughs> uh, I'm I'm living next to people who are just a couple generations removed from this era and this membership, which is a little uncomfortable, uh, but it is what it is. Uh, they're everywhere, right? People like this are everywhere. Uh, not to uh, be too doom and gloom and fear mongering, but we should, you know, we should be aware. We should keep our head on a swivel. Uh, these organizations might not exist in this exact form anymore, but definitely the ideas They've morphed and changed, but uh, they're definitely alive and well. So one thing that I think is really interesting um, is, uh, so after Virgil Effinger took over that same year, a guy named Isaac Peg Pegleg White came down to Lima, Ohio and was inducted and uh, initiated. Uh, before that, he was a member of the Bucktails in Pennsylvania, like I mentioned, and he was already under investigation by the state police, but he was an active police officer in Detroit for a long time. Uh, he would tell people that he lost his leg fighting the uh, the Purple Gang, but it seems like it was actually just some sort of car crash. He got in an auto accident, um, but that's how he kept his reputation. And... Uh, as soon as he got initiated, that's where you really get the connection with, like you said, where they they filled, they were the vigilantes who filled in for the Pinkertons between the official corporate police, they had their own corporate security, um, and the police. So they would, the police would investigate, they would give the membership lists of, of the union, they give union organizers, communists, and socialist lists to this vigilante group. And the vigilante group would give it to the corporate security forces and, and their HR. And uh, and they would also, uh, you know, assassinate organizers, especially wherever there were strikes, 
they really targeted workers in the in striking areas. Really interestingly, um, Effinger claimed, you know, this is, he, uh, he wanted to inflate, he wanted to create a, a bigger mythology. And you never know how much of this really is a mythology with these orders. You know, they always have some lineage and they always claim a greater lineage than they have, but also you never know what kind of lineage they really have. Tenuous networks, at least. Uh, but he claimed that they were a continuous organization all the way back to the Boston Tea Party, right? I was going to say not the Order of St. John, right? Like they no, no. Trying to claim Sons of Liberty. Line of six. He claimed to be uh, uh, from the Sons of Liberty. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, so they did sort of quasi-morph into like what, the Tammany Society or the Fraternal Order of Redmen or something like that, I think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, so yeah probably yeah. like one of the members was like uh, yeah i connected to that group and like yeah yeah we, we broke off from them so we we have the lineage to the sons of liberty bitches yeah. that's all it takes right Contan yeah like contagion magic bitches, right <laughs> i rubbed i went to, i went to one of their headquarters and touched the touched the plaque so now we're good <laughs> we're connected yeah yeah if they get one member who can claim some sort of ancestry right then our connection so yeah he claims to be that that they that that the are you familiar with the paul revere's i know paul revere on the raiders the 60s rockers okay so no uh, paul revere so there's two two kind of narratives of the paul revere's one is that uh the black legion was actually uh that the paul revere's were actually at the parent organization of of the black legion and the other is that the Paul Revere's were the elite death squad of about 300 members of the Black Legion. So they were either the elite death squad or they were the parent organization uh, or both, I guess. Um, and also, and he claimed that they were part of a bigger, that all of that was part of the bigger organization that he said was, he only used the initials SOL. So what I've read as a direct quote is, is, that some mysterious organization as SOL, but in other sites I've read that uh, specifically he said Sons of Liberty. So I would assume that the SOL he is quoted as, as citing is the Sons of Liberty he supposedly had, you know, created as, or maybe really is part of the lineage. So, but when when uh, Isaac Pegg Leg White came in, uh, uh, shit got real, real quick. Assassinations popped up. I don't know, you uh, want to talk about some key figures, right? Yeah, you want to get into some of the big names they tried to target. <laughs> All right, so it's it's really iffy because we really don't know. Um, but with the there, there are two prominent murders that we'll get into later. And through the trials in Michigan, they have special... I, I could interject here for a minute to circle back to the Sons of Liberty. I'd forgotten, uh, but this is really fascinating. There was a Copperhead group uh, that was part of the Knights of the Golden Circle that reorganized itself in 1863 as the Order of American Knights, and then in 1864 mm. it became the Order of the Sons of Liberty. Uh-huh. of strong standing in Ohio because the Ohio politician Clement L. Vallandigham or something like that became one of the most prominent members. So, yeah, that is interesting. I mean, that I is. Suppose, theoretically, like you're kind of talking about with... Um, 
a lot of the members coming up on the hillbilly highway uh from appalachia and so forth this is sort of like right around that whole region so i suppose maybe uh it's not beyond the realm of possibility they were maybe connected to this kind of knights of the golden circle i'll shoot <laughs> i mean that makes perfect sense to me uh especially coming from ohio like that yeah it's fascinating i mean i i've always been really intrigued by this or i should say specifically the whole notion of this perpetual uh, confederate underground of course you know there was the really outlandish stuff around jesse james like what the fourth or fifth or something like that but um my research assistant keith allen dennis was able to track down a guy who had been a member of one of the uh, order of saint john groups during the 1980s uh one that was connected specifically to uh miguel golanowski you know the guy who claimed to be one of the romanov descendants he was mm -hmm. an defector from polish intelligence but really fascinating guy but anyway um so this the guy that Keith was talking to i mean he ended up intersecting with a lot of these far-right circles during this time frame and he insisted the big thing about this far-right militant underground that nobody ever talks about or looks at is the confederate underground and he insisted that it was a real thing and that they still had money you know from the alleged gold and stuff that was funding it because apparently the he did get to know either i think just james the fourth or the fifth and i believe he was tied in with all of this so again i i don't know but it's just it's one of these bizarre things that you just can't totally discount and looking at yeah some of the claims that they're making here it's not entirely improbable in regards to the black legion so again who knows now it's really interesting you kind of talked about maybe a tammany hall or a red order what uh what's it called the order of the red man um yes the improved order of the red man which order mean, the how right right fuck is this thing still around in this thing i mean if you even well, let me tell you i uh, i try to do an episode <laughs> i mean you know don't get me wrong uh, i know they mainly do insurance but you would think they would at least change the freaking name or something right <laughs> so um i did uh i did an episode but we're gonna have to redo it i'm redoing it on wednesday uh for my family thinks i'm crazy on the secret societies at u of m and the great fraternity war of 1847 amongst other things um but that that's going to be a big focus of it and uh one of the main the the main secret society at u of m was 100 percent uh organized directly as the same as, as tammany hall the same uh names you know satchums and uh you know the whole the whole honorary titles and all of that it was yeah. one for one it was identical well yeah because um, everybody yeah. thinks tammany society was just in new york city but no it actually was spread across the country and it did have a lot of ties to the fraternal order of red men and i think also the american philosophical society if i'm not mistaken as well and then also obviously the older lineage on the one hand to um the society of cincinnati and then on the other hand getting into the civil war era the knights of the golden circle because there was very much a close connection to uh the tammany societies and the knights of the golden circle as well well and you had all those literary societies um yeah like i said the american yeah. philosophical society yeah 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 I, I get into that a lot hopefully hopefully we'll be able to redo that episode 
Um, uh, I'm assuming too the yeah. Greek, you know, the sort of Greek um, fraternities as well, because that sort of I found out that a lot of those came out of that whole sort of milieu in Virginia and what have. Yeah, it's quite yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. Uh, it's kind of hard to say um, <laughs> who all was a member, but uh, lots and lots and lots of people, uh, very powerful people. The chief of police of Detroit was was a member. Um, uh, a guy named David Pence, which I was trying to see if he was a relative to Mike Pence, who, you know, Mike Pence is from Indiana, right? Indiana? Is he from Indiana? Possibly. It sounds about I think, right. I think so. Um, but I, it, you know, I'm, I was trying to see if they were related. Uh, I could not tell, but he ended up becoming the president of the Bar Association of Michigan. And this was after it was exposed that he was probably a member of the Black Legion. Uh, you had, uh, I mean, uh, I think they, they said at least a thousand of the Detroit police were members. Um, lots of city councilmen were members. Uh, pretty much if they could get any public person uh, in, as, as a member, they would. Um, Isaac Pegleg White was, uh, was kind of like the grizzled sergeant, I feel like. Uh, but he ended up kind of getting sidelined because he did he did too many assassinations and uh, it was too hot. So they moved him originally uh, up towards Lansing and he kind of to get the spotlight off of him. And a guy named Arthur F. Loop took over uh, running the Michigan regiments. Um, you had, uh, yeah, the state prosecutor was was a member. They even found his, when he was uh, supposed to be doing the investigation, I think it was for the burning down of the the, camp, the camp Union camp. They had a, a recreational camp in Farmington uh, that the Black Legion burned down and uh, they would investigate it. Um, the, the city, was it? Uh, uh, the, the, the city investigator was also the guy who sold the camp insurance and he revoked the insurance the day before it got burned down. And then he refused to investigate because he had he was in the position to do both. Um, uh, I think uh, 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 the Governor Romney, uh, the father of, of Mitt Romney, uh, was likely a member. Um, you know, he ended up becoming governor in the 60s. Was there a Mormon connection to it? I'm the way. I uh, I'm not totally sure about that. Uh, I couldn't couldn't find it. I I'd, I'd imagine, other than that, Romney was likely associated. I I didn't find any other direct Mormon connection. Just just a Protestant angle. But honestly, a lot of these guys were atheists. Um, to be frank, um, they're they're pretty nihilistic types. A lot of them. Um. But yeah, they still had the Protestant, I guess, greater cultural and moral, ethical uh, society they were trying to uh, institute. Uh, let's see, uh, Macrea, he was he was what the prosecutor for the city. He was he was a member, uh, the president of the Hudson. You know, Hudsons don't exist anymore, but they were a major car company back then. And uh, the president of the union was a black mem black legion member, so they would actually try to take over the union leadership as well, in order to to get the union to be dysfunctional, right? Um, so so they even took over the leadership of the unions directly. 
uh, and that's how they broke the big strike at the Hudson, at Hudson, the Hudson, the Pontiac plant. They're very, very powerful at the Pontiac plant. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, Hearst, the Hearst publishing empire was definitely strangely favorable to the black Legion. And, uh, if he wasn't a member, he was definitely aware and very sympathetic and was trying to protect them. Um, same goes for J. Edgar Hoover. We'll get into that a little later. Um, though, so this is really interesting. Uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt's uh, appointment for the labor relations, the automotive, his automotive appointment for the labor relation board, uh, was a, was a member. So, um, that's interesting. Uh, they, in, in the history's books, they really want to kind of make it seem like it was just these kind of hillbilly Southerners, you know, um, and I think those were partially used as fall men, frankly. I think they strategically used that population as a disposable, you know, um, scape. I mean, they were still, they were doing the crimes, uh, but they were, uh, you know, put in front of the, the actual uh, industrialist interests there uh, is what it seems like. So uh, definitely, it was definitely a lot of high-ranking officials. Uh, let's see, there was a guy who was the uh, in charge of, uh, he was a health inspector. Let's see, what was his name? Oh, there was a, a famous doctor named Herman Kiefer uh, in Detroit. Uh, he did a lot with the, uh, the Black Legion, covered a lot of their crimes, committed some crimes himself. What was the baseball player they tried to blackmail? Oh, Mickey Cochran. Uh, so this is really interesting. One of the books about this that's pretty good is called Terror in the City of Champions, which is kind of a play. There is another book called just City of Terror or something, which is a little more academic. But uh, Terror in the City of Champions is really interesting. It's a history of the Black Legion. And at the same year where the Black Legion was peaking and then starting to be exposed, the uh, Detroit Lions won the one. Uh, I don't know if it was the Super Bowl back then. I guess it probably would have been. They won the Super Bowl. The Tigers won the World Series. The Red Wings won the Cup. And Joe Lewis Actually, was... there was no uh, Super Bowl. Just interject, there was no Super Bowl in that era. They didn't have the first Super Bowl, I think, to like 66. Okay, 66. well, they won whatever the big Yeah, I think it was like the national championship. Yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah, so all in the same year, right? You've got the Lions, the Tigers... The uh, the the hockey team. What did I say? The Red Wings, right? The Red Wings, yeah, and they right. had Joe Lewis as the on you know the uh, the greatest heavyweight boxer in the world, right? All at the same time. One of the prominent, the, their big hitter was a guy named Garinger, who was a Jew, and then another was he the Jew? Was he was a Catholic? Green Green Hank Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg was a Jewish guy, and uh, he was a, a really key player. And then Ganger was was a Catholic, but they kind of gave them a free pass. <laughs> they were winning. They were winning the world the World Series. Uh, but Mickey Cochran was most likely a member, possibly against his will. And that I don't think I got into. I yeah, I guess I did get into that. It really was against their will. But not only. Not only did they Shanghai a lot of their membership, some people were di initiated directly that they knew were favorable, ex-Klansmen, et cetera. 
Uh, but they really did dupe a lot of people into joining. And once they were initiated, they did keep a military style level of discipline. If you missed a meeting, you would get beaten. If you missed several meetings, they would hang you or shoot you. Uh, that's how real it was. Um, and they did. They did hang, They did beat a lot of their members and they did kill a lot of their members for not practicing the level of discipline they required. So, uh, you know, this was a, a big deal. And people never talked. People did not talk. There were some people who got caught with open carry who would say they were in the Black Legion or something. But um, uh, aside from the couple of famous cases we're going to get to pretty soon here, uh, we really don't know anything about the organization outside of Michigan and outside of uh, Burt Effinger and uh, the founder, uh, Doc Shepard. Um, and we know that they had big presences in Toledo and Bowling Green and Columbus and Indianapolis and Gary, Indiana, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting too with the, you know, with the presence uh, again in Ohio and Michigan because of some of the crime syndicates there. I mean, the Cleveland gang uh, was especially notorious, of course. The guy who was kind of the uh, de facto head modalities eventually went on to run Las Vegas for the mob. Um, in fact, basically, the, the Cleveland gang was pretty much transplanted into Vegas for that purpose. Uh, and then also Detroit um, had the Purple Gang and some other uh, pretty infamous mobsters at this time as well so it's it's just kind of interesting in that sense because it sounds like they also almost have like an uh an element of organized crime to how they were run as well oh absolutely well like you know remember the oath they are an outlaw organization right that's uh that's up front um and the night riding you get you get a little bit of hooliganism with that too right with that tradition um and they did they were all heavy drinkers as well which uh kind of led to their downfall. Uh, well, do you want to get into the uh, possible ties between the Legion and Henry Ford now? Are you familiar with Harry Bennett? I believe so. That was what Henry Ford's head of security, right? Yeah, they called him, I think I think they gave, called him head of HR, basically head of human resources. Wasn't he called like but, the colonel or something like that? Yeah, yeah they called him the colonel. Uh, and this guy was brutal. So around this time, you had the Ford Hunger March, which happened, I believe, in uh, 1934. And uh, basically, a big group of people got together, um, union organizers and communists, uh, et cetera. It was a pretty big group. Um, they went to, they were going to march from Detroit to the unemployment, Ford's unemployment agency in uh, Dearborn or Dearborn Heights. And everything was going fine. It was a normal, just kind of parade type march. Um, they were just going to go and present their demands. But when they got out of Detroit, right, when they got to the next city limits, they were met with a full phalanx of riot police with uh, water cannons. And they, you know, they just totally attacked the crowd and they fired into the crowd and they killed they killed several people. Um, and this was uh, Harry Bennett. Harry Bennett is actually from the town I'm in, Ypsilanti. He lived in Ypsilanti. But he, he was a real he was a real asshole for sure. And uh he his job was basically to hunt down and uh, take out the union activists and the communists and the socialists right in may of 1935 i believe it was 35 several prominent members of the black legion were having a little vacation holiday 
a little bit outside of town and they decided they wanted to kill a black person for the fun of it uh just as a little holiday you know treat for themselves basically um and so there was a a a guy named silas coleman who was invited out the foreman where silas coleman worked owed silas coleman back wages they owed him something like fifty dollars and so this gentleman the black legion called silas up and said hey uh, I know where the foreman is. He has your money. I can take you to him to get your money for him, right? And the thing is, is this is actually somewhat true. He did get the guy's money. He did get Silas Coleman's money from the foreman. Uh, but it was all a ploy to get Coleman out. And when he got there, they just hunted him down and shot him in the back. You know, it was a very much most dangerous game, kind of, just pure pure thrill kill right and they found his body in uh ford mill ponds okay now when investigators came they wanted to drain ford mill pond and search for more bodies and uh henry ford would not let them they would he would not let them investigate the site and they believed that there were at least eight bodies that had been dumped at Forward Mill Pond. And Henry Ford was very knowingly uh, protecting that. One of the police asked the groundskeeper or someone associated with the area, you know, what they find in the area. And he said, this place is a cemetery. That's what he said. So there are believed to be a minimum of eight bodies that were dumped in Ford Mill's Pond in which Ford would not allow uh, investigators to, to dredge and investigate. So, you know, that's not a good look. We already know Ford is a fascist, but uh, he's definitely, that's a pretty direct connection there. He's, he's hiding specific Black Legion uh, assassinations. And, you know, Ford backed a lot of fascistic organizations like the, uh, the Bund, right? Uh, he was a big backer of the uh, German Bund out on the East Coast. I got a quote from a guy named uh, Dvorak who wrote, a, wrote that is, is probably one of the best academic books on the topic. And he said, in the 1930s during Detroit's labor wars, the Black Legion played an integral part supporting efforts by Detroit's auto barons and preventing the unionization of auto workers and fighting alleged communist sympathizers. The Black Legion was more than a terroristic anti-labor gang. It was a politically powerful force involving significant numbers of law enforcement personnel, judges, and elected officials. The full extent of collusion between civic authorities, industrial management, and the Black Legion may never be known but enough evidence exists to support the premise that Black Legion activities were known and condoned, if not approved, by leaders whose reputations were untouched by the fall of Black Legion. And that's where I think the Black Legion is, is just a smokescreen, right? Um, this is the industrialists who, who yeah, they pick up the, uh, I mean, it's kind of contemptuous, I feel like. They're, they're contemptuous of these people, uh, these organizations uh, that purportedly, you know, they're a part of. Um, there's almost like a two-tiered ideology within, you know, uh, where there's the middle and upper class industrialists and uh, they get all these working class folks in and they uh, just use them as cannon fodder and uh, and disposable, you know, trigger men. So, yeah, and, and the hunger march, right, Ford just absolutely unloaded on the workers and and uh, all of the, the uh, Dearborn police there, uh, a lot of them were members. So, as far as direct connection, uh, I'm not, you know, I was Henry Ford uh, a, 
a literal member? Did he have a membership card? Did he have a 38 caliber bullet in his pocket? I'm not sure. Um, but was there a direct connection? I'm, I'm 99% sure. He definitely knew who they were. He definitely, he, he most probably was coordinate, coordinating with them, or at least through Harry Bennett was coordinating with them. Uh, Harry Bennett worked with these vigilantes to, uh, to take out, like you, you said, to uh, kind of work around how the Pinkertons had. Yeah, it's interesting, too, about you were saying them, uh, the working class being cannon fodder. Didn't Bennett have a pretty uh, unglamorous end with Ford as well? Like, he just basically got fired one day, I think, and wasn't even given any kind of severance pack. I, I think so. With him for like 40 years. I think that's right. I'm not, I'm not totally sure on his story, but I think that's right. Yeah, Ford was a jerk. <laughs>
let's get into the uh, the group's terror campaigns. What are some of the noteworthy murders linked to them? Okay, so there are heavily suspected to be at least 50 murders committed by the Black Legion in Michigan. And like I said, we don't know about murders outside of Michigan. Nobody has really done that research because the two court cases around the murder of Silas Coleman and Charles Poole uh, are pretty much the only information we have because people did not talk. You know, there, there aren't deathbed confessionals. Um, this, this organization was, was, uh, was too scary. Uh, you, you don't have, you don't have in very many informants coming out. You have a couple, there's a guy, I think he went by the nickname X nine or something from some old superhero story. And uh, he, he provides a lot of the inside information we have. I think he was a postal worker. Um, so, and like I said, mostly mostly they targeted, they did arsons and they, they harassed, beat and murdered union activists and communists and black people. Um, specifically, mostly they tried to focus on, on union activists and communists um, more than anybody else, as far as we have of, of the kills. Uh, Silas Coleman and uh, the assassination, the killing of Charles Poole are what really kind of exposed them. There had been lots of, of times that Black Legion members had been brought in and questioned and investigations were, were initiated. And almost every single one, the cops were Black Legion, the prosecutor was Black Legion, and the judge was Black Legion. And it never went anywhere. There are several, several stories like that. Um, they burned down a uh, a campground in Farmington Hills, like or Farmington, like I mentioned. Uh, they there was a famous uh, activist lawyer named Maurice Sugar, who's a really big name in in kind of labor history, and uh, a lot of information we know about the Black Legion also comes from him because he was a target. They never did successfully assassinate him, but they made several attempts, and they uh, certainly harassed him. And he had to have uh, really intense security. Uh, they killed a guy named John Beliak, who was a major union recruiter. He was also Polish, and they really did not. He uh, really did not like uh, the Polish folks, uh, as you can imagine. Um, so they they assessed what happened up until they killed Silas Coleman and Charles Poole. Is the police would never investigate because it was known that they were union organizers and communists. And the official stance on the local policing level was that that was a social good. Like, why would we investigate somebody who was doing something helpful? <laughs> Basically, uh, it was it was endorsed. It was embraced. And so in almost every case, they would blame the assassinations on uh, in left fighting. They said that the communists killed John Beliak. Uh, and they said that uh, 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 George Marchuk, who was a, uh, a black activist, uh, he was, they said that he was killed by, for, because of socialist infighting. And so that's how they handled a lot of these killings. They never investigated. The only reason that Silas Coleman caught the attention was because he was not an activist and he was not a communist. He got murdered for fun. And then also Charles Poole, uh, was also not an activist. Um, and one article I read, it almost said sounded like he was a member, that he had been initiated. Uh, I'm not totally sure. I've, I've only read one. It was uh, uh, Under the Star of the Guard. Um, that's the name of the article. It was published by a U of M grad student. 
And uh, it's a pretty good resource. If people want to learn more, you can find that. It's a free PDF online. It'll give you a good primer. Uh, so this guy, Charles A. Poole, who I believe, according to that article, was actually a member, but he was a Catholic. And he also worked for the WPA, and the WPA was a big target. You know, the whole New Deal, all the New Deal infrastructure, all the New Deal programs were a big target of the Black Legion. They simultaneously would recruit people in powerful positions there because they could get people jobs and whatnot, uh, but they also wanted to undermine them. So I, I think that he was an active member, but like I said, I'm, I'm, I, there's conflicting information on that. Um, so uh, basically at a meeting at, uh, where he wasn't, where he wasn't in attendance, uh, I'm pretty sure he was, like I said, I'm pretty sure he was an actual member. Um, I don't know how they got around the Catholic, Catholicness of his, uh, his identity, but, um, but that's probably why they killed him. So what happened was he wasn't at a meeting and somebody said that, uh, he beat his wife so bad that she had a miscarriage, which isn't true. Uh, but someone said that it said, he's a wife beater. We need to, to put him in line. And what was happening during this era was, I think they were, they were either descending into paranoia or I don't know, but they started killing a lot of their own members for kind of moral infractions. Uh, Dayton Dean got in trouble, uh, but he, he, I guess, was too valuable because uh, he got drunk and, and, uh, and sexually assaulted his 12-year-old stepdaughter. And so he got sanctioned, I think got demoted, and he got a beating. Uh, but Charles Poole, they decided they were going to hang because he beat his wife into having a miscarriage. Like, it was, like I said, it was not true. She actually gave birth the day after he was murdered. Uh, so they told him that they were going to take him out, I think, to a ball game, uh, like a... Uh, and so they they picked him up and they drove him out and uh, they were going to hang him. But the car that had the rope, the noose in it, got turned around and lost. And so uh, they ended up just shooting him. And so the, his body was found the next day. And uh, and I think this, you know, the, the, the kind of official narrative is that these two murders were too unseemly. They were too much in violation of the uh, Protestant ethic they were supposed to kind of be, be espousing. And so official protection was kind of removed from them. And uh, these, the, the men involved in these, both these murders were, were prosecuted um, and, and served, you know, life sentences. Right. Um, but like I said, we, uh, uh, nobody else, nobody else in the organization went to jail. None of the leaders went to jail. Um, there were uh, a grand in Michigan. They did one man sealed grand juries, and all of the grand jury investigations that were supposed to reveal all the public officials who are members, how how uh, integrated the organization was with public office and whatnot. Um, they were all sealed and destroyed. There was only like one county, I think it was Wayne County. Is either Wayne or Oakland that I think it was Wayne that they they did publish they made public the results of the uh, investigation probably because that's where the Wolverine uh, the Wolverine Republican League was based so they probably you know they needed to do a little more serious at least look like they were doing a more serious denazification style thing there but everywhere else uh, they they the, the records were destroyed they were sealed and then destroyed and they had. Uh, 
back in back then there was actually major industrial centers all over West Michigan as well. We don't think about that too much today because they really it really fell apart. There's not that aside from Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids is is a boom town now. Um, but there used to be major industrial ports and fisheries all along the west coast of Lake Michigan. Uh, uh, yeah, on the west coast of Michigan there on, on the lake. And uh, they had major presences there as well in Muskegon and uh, 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 Grand Haven and uh, Holland, places like that. Uh, so we really don't know. We really don't know. Uh, but we the, the people that we do know seem to have gone on and had very successful careers in politics, like I said, even becoming the president of the Bar Association and uh, potentially governor, et cetera. Oh, were there, uh, were there any other significant tr- uh, crimes attributed to the group? Um, there were uh, some, uh, early on, there was a tar and feathering of a, a mixed race couple, um, more of the kind of standard KKK stuff that we hear of outside of Michigan. Uh, they burned down a professor's farm who is from MSU. And that one was also covered up. Uh, it got burned down once and they saved it. His neighbors came and protected his property. All the farmers around came and, and patrolled his property with shotguns. Um, and then uh, before the insurance adjuster, adjuster could come to assess the first damage, uh, it was burned down again and totally destroyed. Uh, uh, he was a MS, he was actually a music teacher, although I think he ended up getting promoted in the uh, academic hierarchy. Uh, but he was suspected to be a communist sympathizer, and they burned down his farm when he was actually in Russia. So he very well may have been a sympathizer of the Bolsheviks. Oh, uh, so there are a couple of of horrible crimes that they were planning to commit that uh, got foiled after the the big reveal with the uh, murders, the investigation to the murder of Silas Coleman and, and uh, Charles Poole. Oh, so, so you, you said they kind of uh, organized crime, right? I think this is really interesting. Um, there was a guy named uh, Guthreefs and uh, he was a big time member. And he actually, in his basement, he ran a bath and massage business. So, I mean, that that's pretty, or- I mean, that, that smacks of, right, of vice uh mafia style yeah vice ring or yeah. something like that yeah. Yeah. Um, but they were yeah. going to turn his basement because it was a bath and massage house and had high humidity they were going to breed a uh, biological weapons uh bacterial biological weapons in his basement because of the warm moist environment so they were cultivating biological warfare in his basement uh effinger had a vial of hydro hydrochloride gas that he would show off to people that he had claimed to have gotten from uh from the U.S. Armory, he had a, a list of every synagogue in the United States, and he was planning on using the gas and on Rosh Hashanah gassing every single synagogue uh, at the exact same time uh, with with his homemade with his uh, military acquired gas there. So that guy exposed, and they did find the vial. Uh, one of their members was a health inspector for the city of Detroit, and they were planning on poisoning all of the milk. I think they're going to put tuberculosis or something in all of the milk in the, the black neighborhoods. So they're going to intentionally contaminate the milk uh, with a deadly pathogen. And uh, at the end there, they the claim was that they had actually, were actually studying the Bolshevik revolution and were planning on 
overthrowing the U.S. government. They had a code word uh, that was Lixo, or spelled like Lixit, L-I-X-T-O, is that it? Which is funny because it's a software company now, you know. Um, but that was their code word, and that was their go word. If if they heard the word Lixo and a, a city, that was going to be the invasion, the uh, uprising code, and the city was going to be where everyone was supposed to converge. So how motivated was the FBI to investigate the Legion? Not at all. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had received multiple complaints, and... Uh, he did not view any of these right-wing groups as actually subversive or radical. Uh, he, once there was a little pressure on him, he did an investigation just of uh, of of federal employees because he he basically he said it's a states' rights thing, it's a, a, a division of power that he can't really investigate. All he can investigate is the federal you know federal employees. So he did a kind of cursory investigation once pressure was applied and just said, nope, none of our people are members. Uh, it was only after President Roosevelt told him directly as World War II was, you know, the U.S. was getting into World War II or starting to, that uh, he was ordered by Roosevelt to investigate groups like the Black Legion. And so officially, J. Edgar Hoover reclassified these groups as subversive. But, you know, Roosevelt had to, uh, but he pretty much used all of his resources just to target leftists. So he was attacking the uh, anarchist organizers like in the IWW and the Communist Party. And uh, he he did not believe that any of these groups were actually a threat. Um, so even when he was ordered, when he was ordered to, he actually did reclassify the group as subversive and start to kind of pretend like he was investigating, but he uh, he did not care. And he very possibly was also a member himself um he definitely was friendly <laughs> friendly to their their mission and uh and goals at the very least well how about uh the connections the legion had to malcolm x now this is a really interesting one uh yeah so malcolm x's father was murdered he was Let's see. I think he was pushed in front of a streetcar. And so that's where we don't we don't really know how many murders the Black Legion pulled off because they loved to do stuff like that. They'd shove people in a crowd in front of a car or they'd run somebody over on a dark night and it would just be a hit and run. And there were a ton of hit and runs in Detroit at this time. Uh, I forget the statistics, but I think there was like 81 hit and runs in one year uh, and like 34. Um so we really don't know how many people they were assassinating and making it look like an accident or a one-off or something like that. Uh, yeah, but he was an outspoken Baptist minister and he support, was a supporter of uh, Marcus Garvey or a little. So they definitely were targeting folks in that milieu. And also there was a... Uh, uh, Molotov, I believe it was a Molotov cocktail that was thrown into Malcolm X's window when he was a kid. Uh, that was also by the uh, the black. Well, Malcolm X's mother believed that was a Black Legion, but at the time that uh, this was 1931, so the fact that she even knew who the Black Legion was in 1931 is pretty impressive. But she knew who they were to uh, accuse them, uh, because they were most people. There were a couple of of 
of cases, like I said, of of folks who are leaving the big uh, the big gatherings, initiations, and whatnot, who had been caught and got picked up for like concealed carry breaches or whatever that never went anywhere. So there were a couple of a couple of times where they ended up getting exposed in the public, but uh, they definitely weren't known in any way to the public, especially in 1931. What were some of the pop culture depictions of the group uh, by the late 1930s? So there were a couple of movies that were made about it. One of them, probably the most famous one, starring Humphrey Bogart. And uh, there's a famous line at the end, which, uh, you know, you're talking about how at this time fraternal organizations were were very popular and, and there were people who went around collecting memberships. And uh, there's this famous kind of monologue in it where they talk about how America is a nation of joiners. And it really calls out the kind of groupthink of that era and, and is kind of credited with maybe shifting uh, the American appetite for these organizations. Um, but it was also very popular with the kind of true detective scenes, uh, the pulp, the kind of pulp journalism Um there are a lot of a lot of pamphlets written about them, and 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 those stories and the more kind of, I don't I guess pulp journalism, yeah, they uh, they really played up the cult aspect, you know, ritual murders, right? They they talked about a lot of these assassinations, they as they reframe them as ritual cultist ritual murders, you know, and in this way, it really kind of echoes the way people talk about the ONA, and I can't help but feel that there's kind of some similarities. There's kind of a a resonance with how the ONA, uh, the Order of Nine Angles, you know, really uh, the mystique around it, you know, there's definitely some historical resonance there. Um, although as far as I know, the ONA has not been known to target union activists or anything. So, but they, they definitely kind of play up this 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 kind of satanic panic-ish aspect, even though they were, you know, radical Christians at the end of the day committing these crimes. So that that was a big part of how it was presented to the public was this kind of ritual cult murders. When is the legion generally believed to have come to an end? So the the big court cases, the killings of Silas Coleman and Charles Poole is really credited with the end of the Black Legion. And uh, they kind of petered out by 1938. It's kind of thought that by 1938, they were totally defunct and and no longer extant in any any significant way um and that may be true i I definitely think the uh the above ground the uh the costume was was laid down at that point i think that's definitely true um but seeing as how the black legion was kind of just a reshuffle of the kkk uh in my opinion it seems like there was just new reshuffles that happened well, no, no, there there have been persistent rumblings that have prevailed into at least the 1980s. Do you have anything on that, Lester? I know that there were two organizations that were formed immediately following the breakup of the Black Legion. Bert Effinger started a new organization called the Patriotic League of America. He moved down to Texas. Now, the official story is, and most of the the articles and stories repeat this, is that he went down to Texas and he went to the publisher, he, or he went to a, a printing company to get his, his new pamphlet printed up 
you know, a uh, recruiting pamphlet for the Patriotic League of America. And, uh, and the, uh, one of the employees took that and forwarded it to the FBI and the FBI intervened and it just never went anywhere. That's the official story. But there is a, an article by Paul Amid. I think it was that article. It was either that one or an article by a guy named uh, Palela that uh, showed that the Patriotic Sons of America or Patriotic League of America was definitely actually started and did uh, do, they, it, it did end up being a real organization but they don't cover much more than the first couple of years of existence. And I don't have a story about it actually disappearing. Um, like I said, mostly it's totally ignored. And the only real difference between the Patriotic League of America and the Black Legion was that Effinger decided that Catholics were okay. So I think he was trying to uh, maybe, you know, cast a bigger net. Uh, so, like I said, officially, Patriotic League of America got intercepted and was just, you know, never, just didn't even start. But that does not seem to be true. Uh, and the the other organization that seemed to pick up a lot of the members of the Black Legion is a group called the uh, National Workers League. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, the National Workers League carried on a lot of the same things. I think they were more invested in kind of British Israelism as well. Um, but I, I think they really picked up the working class folks who were who were dropped after the Black Legion fell apart. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, they went on through the war. A couple of their members were uh, caught up in the Great Sedition Trial of 1844. Um, yeah, the one with like William Dudley Paley and a lot of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were kind of in that milieu. Uh, after that, you know, uh, it's hard to say you, you immediately, you have the John Birch it, uh, to me, I, it's just, these people just, it's like rebranding, you know, um, oh, this, oh, go ahead. so, you know, from there, I don't have a direct lineage after the Patriotic League of America and the National Workers League, but we do know that in Michigan, uh, the John Birch Society was huge. We know the Workers League continued after World War II, at least until the late forties. And from there you get the John Birch Society, which was huge. And from there, you get the new KKK. Uh, and from there, you get... And, yeah, well, the and, Michigan Militia, too. Like and the, then you get the Michigan Militia. The Michigan Militia is different. I don't know. The Michigan Militia is weird. Um, they're, they're a little savvier. I'd say it's more like the whole... The whole militia of Michigan... Not necessarily the Michigan Militia itself, but the militia movement. Because um, there are a lot of different militias, too. The Michigan Militia... I guess initially it was it was definitely worse, but they they uh, they've really tried to tow a tighter line. I feel like at least now they do, but that was after the bombings. So my exposure to the Michigan militia is kind of tempered by the PR they've done past the, the like Oklahoma City bombings or whatever. Um, but I, I definitely definitely that whole milieu is very much related, uh, very similar in ideology and intention and scope. Um, and uh, what they find every couple of years, they find a big military training camp off in the state, you know, deep in the woods somewhere in Michigan. There's There's been a couple of famous cases where they find weapon caches and training camps. They have no one to claim what you had. A, what was the name of there was that cult that got 
uh, what were they called? They were so weird. They got busted in like 2008. They were planning on killing a police officer. They were a Christian militia and they had a really weird hierarchy. Uh, the Hutari. Do you remember that? H-U-T-A-R-E-E? No, no, that sounds interesting, though. Yeah, that, that was a, a really strange incident. Recently, Michigan's kind of famous because what there was that group that was going to try, supposedly trying to assess to uh, kidnap Governor Whitmer, right? It was dismissed partially because it was hashed by the FBI. There were some serious entrapment issues. But one of the groups was called like the, the Wolverine. They used the Wolverine at... Um, it was like the Wolverine militia or something. And that really harkens to the Wolverine League, right? The Re Wolverine Republican League. So yeah, the Hutari, they had a, a look up the Hutari. It'll, uh, it, it'll tickle your fancy. I can tell you that. I remember when it was the day it happened, I looked them up and I found their, their servers, their actual internal um, message boards, right? They had password protected them. And uh, they were going to Michigan militia people trying to get protection. And Michigan militia were like, no, nah, you're crazy. <laughs> Y'all are crazy. We, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, and they actually got caught because a Michigan militia member uh, threw them under the bus, basically exposed them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but too, the Michigan militia was your informants for years. So I guess that's not entirely surprising. One of the yeah. reasons why they were also able to operate for years pretty uh unencumbered by federal uh, intervention yeah right we know how those things work right um so and on more personal anecdotal as a student at eastern michigan i uh you know there there are some old journalist professors and some old radicals who were you know finishing out their glory years at the university and they all had friends who were anti-war activists who were union activists who were black power activists who uh in the 70s and 80s, who would just be found, you know, rolled up in a carpet in the trunk of a car with a bullet hole in their head, you know, um, these political assassinations were very real and very, uh, they continued on uh, well, well past, you know, if, if, if uh, politically, you know, killing union activists and whatnot is a uh, calling card of the Black Legion, then, then that continued well into the 80s. Uh, and you have to kind of probably link it to some aspects related to probably like COINTELPRO, internal state, you know, like the state behind operations uh, that they had going on in Europe. You have to imagine they were doing things like that in the U.S. as well. And they would be using a group like the Black Legion to do it. Like I said, I'm sure they rebranded, but the the calling card, the the kind of uh, the, the fruits of their labor, so to speak, were definitely evident well into the 80s. Well, um, now there's one other interesting thing. It's more synchronistic, um, but I, I was looking up. I was trying to find more things that were, or when I was looking up Patriotic League of America, and I couldn't find anything about them. But I did find a, a thing called the Patriotic League of the Sacred Sword. Have you heard of that? Uh, no, I have not. All right. So this was a psyop. Special Forces operation in Vietnam. Oh, Sacred Sword of the Patriots League. That's what it's called. Uh, it was a black operation coordinated by the CIA. It was carried out by the Military Assistance Command, uh, the Vietnam Studies Observations Group, uh, and involved a combination of psychological warfare and psychological operations. And 
basically what they did was they made a legend about a uh, a group in North Vietnam. It's very similar to to kind of how the Azov Battalion, you know, the like the trident that they they use for the symbolism mm. of the more nationalistic Ukrainian things. How they 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 tried to find this like ancient mythic nationalist identity, right? So they they created this myth of uh, in North Vietnam of this this thriving huge group uh, that was committed to this kind of these this kind of nationalistic notion of of uh, of North Vietnam, and you can kind of see how it echoes how uh, Effinger tried to inflate the, uh, you know, it's kind of like a fake it to make it or you know, like a manifestation. It's almost like a manifestation ritual, right? They created this story about this resistance, nationalist resistance movement in order to create that national resistance movement. Um, so that that's kind of interesting that they picked that name of, of you know, Patriots League. Uh, yeah, they, they chose it in popular in, in kind of popular Vietnamese history because there was uh, some some sword, right? Some sacred sword in there, the mythologized history that they they use that as a symbol. Um, well, out of curiosity, yeah. was there any kind of international connection? Because I am struck by the similarities between the Black Legion and Le Cagoule in France, and there was a similar relationship uh, in terms of many members of Le Cagoule being involved with the military and other prominent industrialists and so forth who were funding them. Of course, they established vast, vast caches of weapons across the country in the interwar years, <clears throat> and then... Uh, they were broken up, I think, around 1939, but after the Vichy regime uh, came into play, uh, many of the former members were brought into the security forces and so forth. Though, in fairness, some of them actually did join the resistance as well. There was a lot of debate with that, and then also whether to simply support the French nationalists and not the Nazis, or to go full in with the Nazis, but... Even after the Second World War, a lot of them uh, would work in the early uh, kind of Gladio networks. I think it was called Plan Blue in uh, France. Mm. And then even into, I want to say around the 60s or so, uh, several of these guys, I think, were even tied in with the Ginter Press and, um, you know, the whole uh, the OS and that whole sort of network that broke out after the attempted coup against de Gaulle in the early 60s over Algeria. So they essentially remained an ongoing network of triggermen and so forth uh, for many, many years. In fact, I think one of the, the top gunmen, like Jean Violet or something like that, I think was, they ended up having a lot of connections to, what is the big perf the, the perfume company from France? It's, it's Leodore or something like that? I think that sounds right. But that... Leodore. Like a lot of the former Cogliards were actually working for the company all the way up to the late eighties, early nineties, including I think one of the more notorious gunmen, if I'm not mistaken. It became like a bit of a scandal in the early nineties for them. So those guys were very active, though, pretty much throughout the onset, or really, I mean, even before the Second World War, up to uh, at least some point in the Cold War. And then, of course, the regalia of Le Cagoul, they had the black hoods with the pointed tops, uh, like the Klansmen, which sound very 
similar to the Black Legion. And then, of course, later uh, you had Propaganda Due in Italy, where they also had their sort of Black Klansmen's robes that they wore over their or under their Masonic regalia, which I always thought was fascinating. Of course, one of the names for them was uh, Black Friars, if I'm not mistaken, although obviously it would have been an Italian name. But it's interesting because a lot of the Cogliards uh, went into the broader Lissacal network in the Cold War era, which Propaganda Due was also tied in with so there is this sort of continual lineage and then of course back in the you know the heyday in the 30s uh, it actually seems like the italian secret services were the primary supporters of le Cagoule, uh ironically even more so than the french military uh but again this the le Cagoule was really big in the mid to late 30s when the spanish civil war was going on uh which the u.s and um you know, a lot of the other nations, UK, France, uh, were officially backing the Republican forces and then the Nazis. And I think the Soviets were actually, no, maybe the Soviets were playing the other side. I can't recall. But anyway, the, the Soviets Nazis- were backing the uh, the rebellion. They, uh, the Soviet, but they also, uh, so there's a really, they call it the Stalinist betrayal. So in practice, they were supposedly fighting the fascists. But in reality, they were fighting the other leftists for supremacy and letting the fascists win. Um, so I don't know if there was some secret agreement, you know, uh, that they had, or if uh, they were just so obsessed with their, you know, Stalinist supremacy uh, that they had to purge the other leftists before <laughs> they could successfully fight the fascists in their, but you know, Franco- strategic worldview, but... But Franco yeah. was being supported by the Nazis in Italy, I believe. And yes. Cogliards were actually a big source of arms trafficking for weapons to Franco through uh, France, along with the tactical support of the French military as well. In fact, that's probably one of the main reasons why they stockpiled so many firearms. But the point being, the, the Cagoule definitely had a reach throughout Europe. And as we had sort of talked about a little before, Henry Ford, of course, was at least sending some monies to the early Nazi party in the 20s, yes, the white yeah. Russian network, of course, Brazil and all this other stuff. So you you really have to wonder if there might have been some kind of connection with that. And then again, you sort of see at least some similarities with how Propaganda Dewey operated in Italy and even the regalia that they used in relation to how um, the Black Legion operated in michigan ohio and a few of the other midwestern states so it's it's really interesting to consider it in that context as well oh um, yeah model it might have been whether there was like any kind of overlap um do you have any thoughts on that uh, i i haven't come upon anything directly and if there is i would definitely put it on the more industrial side of of the organization the kind of secret backers on that level i have no doubt i mean not only was ford an early supporter of the Nazi party, but he continued to, his factories continued to make weapons and tanks and, and GM, Ford and GM plants were making weapons for the Germans throughout the entire war. Uh, and not only that, but when they were bombed, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but Ford and GM plants were bombed by the by the U.S. At the end of the war, they sued the U.S. government for damages, even though they were making weapons for Germany. They, the U.S. government paid out damages to Ford, to the factory, 
that they bombed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're the, the chess masters in a way, right? They're, they're above, above the states, it seems like. Well, I think ironically, too, if I'm not mistaken, the Fords had a monopoly, I think, to manufacture certain kinds of vehicles in the Soviet Union for a lot of years as well. I think that's right. So it's like at the same time when they were funding all of this like insane militant anti-communism here, they were still reaping enormous profits from doing business with the Soviets. Too. Well, the Bolsheviks were, uh, you know, they they were able to consolidate the power because they received capitalist backing they they articulated an economic viewpoint that at least internationally the capitalists could still work with so they made a deal with the banks uh lenin made a deal with the banks in order to basically consolidate power and betray the the revolutionary socialists and the uh because you know soviet means council right and so initially the soviet union was supposed to be a federation of directly democratic councils it was supposed to be very much a confederalized sort of thing a, a, a grassroots bottom-up process and you had so many anarchists and democratic socialists trying to do things on a community level um and you had like a Makhno in ukraine doing his peasant his kind of peasant reform anarchism uh and uh and so the bolsheviks they were able to, they were a small group uh, but they were able to take power, especially because Trotsky, right? Trotsky's uncle was a famous Wall Street banker or uh, investor, and Trotsky got funding. Yeah, yeah, that uh, all ties from, in with Sidney yeah. Riley, too. It's such yeah. an interesting saga there, the so-called Ace of Spies. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's all complicated and convoluted, right? <laughs> yeah, that it is. Well, do you do you have any uh, closing thoughts on possibly the uh, how the legacy of the Legion lingers in Michigan, Lester? Well, we, we do have that very recent case. Um, the uh, the Wolverine militia, like I, I said, uh, the the Michigan militia is still around, although they haven't been. Uh, they've kept their nose clean in the past several years, and have, but like you said, mostly have served as uh, informants on the rest of the militia movement. Uh, the uh, the Patriot movement is very big in Michigan. Um, I'm not sure about clandestine operations. Uh, that's always hard to know in real time what's happening. Um, I do know that I have I have seen act. I don't know any activists who have been disappeared that I'm aware of, but I have I do know activists who were uh, definitely kidnapped and harassed, um, and uh, you know released. Uh, but it's mostly at this point, the the uh, after nine eleven, um, they get a, the the police get away with a lot more. So I don't know how much of it they have to really put off on the vigilantes <laughs> currently. Um, but there is definitely uh, uh, a lot of that happening. Uh, there's a lot of very virulent nationalism, especially in the richer Detroit suburbs. Um, a couple of years ago, I was driving trucks for a roofing company, uh, going back and forth to landfills, spotting tra dump trailers, and uh, Dearborn Heights, it's still, uh, you know, uh, it's still a hotbed of elite white supremacy uh, in those neighborhoods. Those, there were a lot of three percenter flags. There were a lot of uh, militia flags. Um, there are a lot of flags I have never seen anyone waving. <laughs> 
<laughs> but they just had them out on their porch um, in a in a dense community. Uh, they were flying their 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 militias, their not not Michigan militia, these different different militias that emerged uh, since Obama, right? When you had the huge, what uh, there was a study that what the number of organizations went from something like thirty six nationally to like 800 or something uh under obama yeah um, so it's insanely yeah so that, that that's definitely alive and well and you like i said people kind of have this idea of it kind of being a hillbilly thing but i'm going to tell you these were very uh nice uh nice neighborhoods nice houses and they were waving flags that are definitely paramilitary in nature definitely nationalistic um so yeah people people are, are letting the flags fly literally in that regard well man it's uh it's been an epic discussion that's for sure and always a pleasure to have you on sir well i appreciate it uh you're one of the greats you're <laughs> keeping it keeping it real so, <laughs> it's a real honor to uh to get to be on your podcast so thanks thanks for humoring me oh a uh, quick follow-up i don't know if you got uh if i can talk for just another minute or two um okay. the people who listen to the us 23 episode so this is this is really fun so on uh, august 11th there was thunder over michigan right and thunder over michigan is the big air show it happens every summer and they fly right over my house to the point where I can see the badges on their uniforms, right? Scares the shit out of my dogs. It's, it's terrible. My dogs are miserable the whole time. Um, but this year, this year, 2023, is the 200th anniversary of the founding of Ypsilanti. It was founded in 1823. So in 2023, a MiG fighter, a MiG-23, okay, the MiG-23 flown by uh, a guy out of Texas who calls this company the Unknown Aircraft Company. His MiG starts to have a problem flying over Belleville Lake, which is where uh, the uh, the plant, the right where the plant used to be. The, uh, it started having issues, and uh, he ejected. And the MiG-23, which flies Mach 2.3 as a stop speed, crashed right next to a uh, Waverly place on the lake and uh, torched the shit out of the apartment, the side of the apartment. No one was hurt. The pilot and the co-pilot landed in the, uh, in the lake. Um, uh, but the very next day, the Russian ruble totally collapsed. And uh, I just think that's really interesting. Uh, when he released the plane, I think he was pointing it towards the landfill. So, I don't know. There's just some like synchronistic imagery there of a MiG-23 on the uh, 200th anniversary of Ypsilanti, which was the heart of the arsenal of democracy for for you know the great the World War II. Uh, it crashes into a almost into a mound, right? This is pointed towards landfill, which is a really big mound. And he had, a, I think, I assume he aimed it towards that because it was probably the only, only unpopulated place he could aim it for. It didn't make it, uh, didn't make it to the landfill. It land, crashed right before the landfill next to the apartment complex. Um, so I just think that's, you know, that's that's full of of some some strange symbolism, uh, numerology there, uh, right by U, US 23, 20, you know, the 200th anniversary, founded in 1823. 
a MiG-23 that flies at 2.3 Mach. Uh, the company's called Unknown Aircraft Company. Um, it's uh, it, And then the ruble crashes the next day. And uh, I just think, I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. But uh, I went over to the spot where it crashed and I got me some souvenirs. So uh, I have a little plastic bag that reeks of uh, aircraft fuel. <laughs> I have some, some scrap parts of the MiG-23 that crashed. Uh, and I don't really know what to make of it, but it, uh, oh, oh, and right next to there is, a uh, right where it crashes between two cemeteries that are both famously haunted. One holds, uh, a, you know, a famous witch, uh, the Denton witch it's called soup cemetery. And immediately on the other side is what's it called? Is it, uh, lakeside cemetery or hillside hilltop cemetery. And that's supposed to have a lady in white. It's right by a bridge there. Uh, so it's like a highly, like locally, it has a lot of you know, it's, it's a very folklore dense little area to begin with right there by Belleville. It's pretty wild. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because it seems like you see a lot of that. You've been seeing a lot of that with the conflict with Russia. Um, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, right off the bat of the whole thing with Prokhozin. Of course, the coup oh, right. <laughs> uprising was on June 23rd, St. John's Eve. And then he supposedly wow. died on August 23rd, two months later. Uh, and then also, too, you had the whole bizarre incident with the submarine. Uh, what was it? The Trident going down right, right leading up to St. John's Eve. The guy who uh, was running it was from those two prominent American dynasties, essentially. Even more bizarrely, prior to doing the tours of the uh, Titanic, he actually did tours off the Santa Catalina Islands, which is where the uh, the Tuna Club of Avalon was based out of, or still is, I should say, to this day, which I've covered a lot in the Albacore series. But yeah, man, it's that's really the bizarre thing about this conflict is how much of this kind of stuff you seem to be seeing now. Or, I mean, who could forget, too, the whole thing with the... Um, I think it was maybe last year or early this year uh the derailed uh train car in ohio mm -hmm. uh, white noise which now they tried to bring the sludge the toxic sludge from that derailment to the landfill the mig almost crashed in <laughs> no that does not surprise me which is only like two miles from my house. So that's super uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just like I said, there's just so much weird stuff like that. It is very peculiar, no doubt. And one, one other update I know in that episode, I talked about uh, a hotel right at the intersection of Washtenaw and US 23. Well, a couple weeks after we did that interview, the maintenance guy mysteriously showed up dead in the basement. He was a live-in maintenance guy. He had a 14-year-old kid who was living in the hotel with him. He, he shows up dead, and now they're demoing the or it's getting renovated. Some, some corporate chain has bought it. That all happened shortly after we did the interview. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think I had something to do with that. <laughs> well, not the guy dying, obviously, but, I mean, the, uh, the shady hotel front getting... getting uh, a makeover or getting a makeover new new management new ownership uh, yeah, yeah. so that's just another update from uh from that episode your listeners might be interested in all right man well i guess on that note we will sign off for now as always i want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support and with that good night and good luck to you all <laughs>
Papa Queen for singing this I took it to the Gulf J We were raised, my people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 